0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temen.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, June 27th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temmin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive why the debt ceiling deal is not quite the defense windfall it seems to be. Plus, USDA modernizes an important research facility with a whole new building. Those stories much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Department of Veterans Affairs has tried twice before to replace its aging financial management IT system. Both attempts failed. But the third try could be the charm. The current project, called ITAMS, is mostly on track. Lawmakers say they're determined to make sure it stays that way, and that's partly because nearly $4 billion are at stake, and partly because VA can't afford to keep using its 30-year-old
2: legacy system anymore. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has the details. IFAM's crossed a significant milestone this month. After five previous small deployments over the past three years, the new system went live in its largest wave yet, increasing its total user base by 60% all at once. Terry Riffle, VA's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Financial Management Business Transformation, says the system now has 4,700 users.
0: IFAM's users have collectively processed over 3.5 million transactions, representing almost $10 billion in Treasury disbursements. IFAMS is stable, achieving over 99.9% uptime. It was also the first time VA went live simultaneously with both the finance and acquisition components of IFAMS, which demonstrates IFAMS is a viable solution capable of becoming the next generation financial and acquisition solution for VA. It's important to understand that IFAMS is not just a new core accounting and acquisition system. It is crucial to transforming VA's business processes and capabilities Both, So we can meet our goals and objectives in compliance with financial management legislation and continue to successfully execute our mission to provide veterans with the health care and benefits they have earned and deserve.
2: And moving VA off of that legacy system is a matter of some urgency. The department itself says the old system presents enormous risk because it's becoming increasingly expensive to maintain and because it wasn't built to current audit standards. That means VA has a very difficult time implementing financial improvement recommendations when its auditors make them. And even though VA is currently able to earn clean audit opinions, doing so requires a lot of manual workarounds. Nick Dahl, VA's Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audits and Evaluations, says the material weaknesses auditors are reporting tie directly back to the inadequacies of the current system. Continuing with uh, material weaknesses would be likely. They'd still be doing the manual workarounds for certain things. I I would say bigger picture, you, you have to look at it, that VA recognized the need to replace FMS more than two decades ago. They weren't successful with core FLS or flight. They're now working with IFAMs. I would say that you know if this system is not successful, how, how much longer will it take to get a modern system, how much effort, how much financial resource? So I'm very hopeful that IFANS is going to be successful um, because obviously we're dealing with a system that, that's 40 years old and it's not meeting the needs. So it really is, I think, vital that VA does all they can to get this system online. And even though VA is confident in IFAMS as of now, it still has a long way to go. 4,700 users may sound like a lot, but the total VA workforce who will need to use the system is about 125,000 people. And so far, IFAMS has only been tested in the National Cemetery Administration, part of the Veterans Benefits Administration, and some smaller VA components. So far, the department hasn't tried to implement it in its largest and arguably most complex component, the Veterans Health Administration. Again, Terry Riffle.
0: What I will acknowledge is that obviously VHA is the largest organization that we have yet to implement. I would also tell you that that's by design. We want to make sure that we're addressing any improvements that we need to make with our deployment strategy before we tackle VHA And also the complex programs that VBA has remaining, uh, those obviously would impact veterans in some way if we don't do them correctly. And so we've purposely established the schedule in the manner that we have so that we can ensure that we're uh, learning from what we've already done. And by the time we get to VHA, we'll we'll leverage all of those uh, improvement activities when we implement.
2: But VA's congressional overseers are concerned that VA has spent a significant amount of money already to serve a relatively small population of users. The department has put about a billion dollars into IFAM so far. Meanwhile, its total life cycle cost estimate has grown to about seven and a half billion dollars. Congressman Matt Rosendale is chairman of the House VA Technology Modernization Subcommittee.
1: From the information we have, the system seems to be relatively successful in those offices. But there's still reason to be concerned. These organizations only add up to a few thousand users and a small fraction of the VA's budget. Implementing the IFAMs in the major organizations like the Veterans Health Administration and the big spenders within the Veterans Benefits Administration keeps getting pushed out and now it's not scheduled for a rollout until 2024 and beyond.
2: And Riffel says there's no way to guarantee the program won't undergo more cost growth between now and the late 2040s, when IFAMS is expected to reach its end of useful life.
0: Um, what we will tell you is that based on the methodology that we're using to deploy, uh, there will be instances from time to time where we find For example, a new interface that wasn't originally identified. As you can imagine, in VA, we're doing constant modernization across the enterprise. So we are going to have discovery from time to time. What I would tell you is that the way that we're structured in an agile fashion, it's allowed us to continue to proceed, to actually move other waves forward or begin activity on another wave while we're pending, getting more intel on a modernization interface or something like that. So although you are seeing some increases, what you're also seeing is our ability to flex with that and to ebb and flow as those modernization efforts continue.
2: One major complication VA will face as it starts to deploy IFAMs into the Veterans Health Administration, the system will need to interface with other huge IT systems that haven't been built or finished yet. Perhaps the biggest examples are VA's future system to manage its medical supply chain and its new electronic health record.
0: We're proceeding with integrating with Legacy Supply Chain. And so as we move into VHA, which obviously we've been working with VHA for the past two years, but we're at the point now where we we need to start really in earnest working on the implementation. We'll implement with Legacy. With EHRM, uh, we have been coordinating with that office since inception. They have all of our requirements, detailed requirements. We'll continue to do that collaboration across the board. And then, you know, as they continue to move out, when they do, uh, we'll be prepared for that integration. It allows me to integrate with what's available right now as I'm going to implement at a site and also understanding that when the enterprise supply chain solution becomes available, we'll pivot and we'll actually integrate with that future solution. We know we need to do it. But in the interim, we're going to integrate with what's available right now, so we can proceed.
2: Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
1: Still to come: USDA modernizes an important research facility with a whole new building. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temmin here on Federal News Network. The Agricultural Research Service has broken ground on a big new facility at the University of Kentucky. It's known as the Forage Animal Production Research Unit. For what it's all about, what's going to happen there, we turn to the ARS Research Leader for Forage Animals, Michael Fleith. Mr. Fleith, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. Well, let's begin with the big picture, forage animal production research. What is that all about? Forage is animals that we're going to eat that in turn eat grass.
3: Yes, exactly. It's really all about grass. It's really all about how do you turn sunlight into something you can use? And plants do that. Plants can take nutrients from the soil and rain and sunlight and turn it into grass. But, you know, people, there are limited ways in which we can directly utilize grass. But one of those ways is by making use of the animals that can eat it.
1: So what are the resources? research topics that are top of mind for this, making grass that's more efficient in terms of having more nutrients packed in so there's less forage land needed? I mean, what do you look at in forage research?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I like to think of it as as a triangle with the word respect in the middle of it. That's kind of what sustainability means to me. And so we want a forage animal production systems that respect the land and our natural resources and our soil. And we want it to respect the animal, the uh, evolutionary history of the animal, the animal's health and the the well-being of the animal. And we also want the system to respect the people who do that agriculture, that they can make a living off of it. Particularly here uh, in Kentucky, where we're located, most forage animal producers are family-owned businesses. You know, we have beautiful broodmare farms uh, for our horses. Those are family-owned businesses. And then, uh, you know, cattlemen and goat producers and sheep producers, very often they have jobs off-farm, but they have a small herd of animals that represents their family's wealth. And so to us, sustainability includes all of those things.
1: And so the research then centers on what What specifics, what's changed here over a thousand years of, you know, goat herding or 10,000 years of goat herding?
3: Oh, a lot of improvements have been done. One thing is that animals don't migrate the way they would in nature, right? So we have to have uh, ways to maintain those animals on our farms, uh, ways that honor and mix use of their evolutionary history of migration, but find a way to do it, you know, in a way that it can be done on a farm. And so there are improved forage varieties, improved soil management practices and improved animal management practices. One of the issues that we have that we can face is drought here in Kentucky many many decades ago they discovered a grass called tall fescue that's very very drought resistant and one of the reasons it's so drought resistant is because it has fungal endophyte a fungal partner a symbiont that lives inside of the grass and makes it very resistant to pests and very hardy and drought resistant but the problem is is it also makes it toxic to the animals and we didn't know that until we had spread fescue all over the country wow it's a great turf grass, but animals have problems related to it. And so one of the things that our unit does is work on solutions to that fescue problem.
1: Right, so that a grass that can be grown and regrown and regrown in the same place with a minimum of water that can still feed the animals over and over again, basically on a given farm. That's the big challenge.
3: Yes, exactly. And do it in a way that that grass is not susceptible to insect pests and diseases and things like that, but also doesn't hurt the animal. This one in particular, the fungus makes a toxin that in impedes the animal's blood flow. They can't get blood out to the extremities, which becomes a problem for heat dissipation. So they can become very, very hot and when it's not hot, and you'll see them standing in the water or standing under the shade and not eating, and it looks like they just don't feel very good. Uh, so we've come up with improved forage varieties that don't have that toxin, but then also ways to reverse that toxicosis when those animals are sick.
1: Interesting. We're speaking with Michael Flythe He's a research leader for the Forage Animal Production Research Unit, part of the Agricultural Research Service. Now, this new center at the University of Kentucky. What is that all about? It's a huge building that's under construction now. What will happen there? It
3: is a partnership between the USDA's Agricultural Research Service and the University of Kentucky. Our researchers have been on the ground here at University of Kentucky for almost two decades now, but we haven't really had a home. We've been living in University of Kentucky facilities and working with their faculty members who help us with our projects, but we're spread out all over campus. And so this is going to put us together in one state-of-the-art facility. You know, Tom, one of the key things, about science or or anytime you're working together with people is having them together in a place where they can collaborate and sharing a coffee pot. So many great scientific ideas come from people standing around the coffee pot. And so uh, you can increase the rate of these happy accidents in science just by having people working together. And so the building is going to be laid out in a way so that university researchers or USDA researchers be side by side when they're working on the same projects rather than separated by which institution they work for. We're going to let the science, and we have let the science, design, uh, drive the design of the building.
1: And will there be facilities there that a animal can eat in and that you can grow grasses in and this kind of thing? And will there be kinetic type of lab activity
3: there? Uh, animal facilities, no. Uh, the University of Kentucky has several wonderful research farms. Those and our other partners like Kentucky Cattlemen's Association, they have a research and demonstration farm too. And the work will continue on those farms. This will mostly be state-of-the-art lab facilities, but there will be greenhouses.
1: All right. By the way, what are the forage animals? I mean, Kentucky horses forage, don't they? The reason I ask is mostly when you see animals feeding, they're eating corn out of a trough and that's not really foraging, is it?
3: No, and, and that's, that is a very good point. Horses are certainly included in our mission. Cattle are a big part of our mission. Uh, Kentucky is the uh, largest cattle producing state uh, east of the Mississippi. And we have the cow herds that provide many of the calves that might go out west uh, later in their life and small ruminants like sheep and goat.
1: Right. So what is that whole issue all about then? Because the corn versus grass question is an ecological question. It's an animal welfare question. It's a resource question. Where is that all heading? Just out of curiosity.
3: Very astute, Tom. Yes, absolutely. Uh, corn is, uh, other cereal grains are a great way to get calories into an, an animal, but ruminant animals like cattle and goats, that's not what they evolved to eat. It's um, a much more highly digestible and sometimes it does cause, cause health problems for them. And that's one of the parts of, of our mission is finding the best way to finish these animals on forage on a diet that they were evolved to consume.
1: This is a really in the weeds question, no pun intended. But when they're eating corn, do they also chew their cud? Or is that a result of eating forage, grass?
3: They do, but there is there is a response to having longer stemmed material. You're talking about ruminants that chew their cud, and so that's that they'll bring up a bolus of material that they've already swallowed and chew it some more. And really that's to make surface area for their bacteria. And so the first chamber of a ruminant's digestive tract is called the rumen. And essentially it's a big fermentation vat, and it allows them to get calories out of materials that we couldn't get calories out of, like fiber. So a human needs fiber and fiber goes out the same way that it came in. And that's part of the reason that it's important to you. But a ruminant can break that down. It's not really the animal that's doing it, it's their bacteria that's doing it. And so they make surface area for their bacteria by bringing it up to chew again. And yes, the, the longer stemmed material does stimulate them to bring that up and chew it some more.
1: Interesting. And how did you come to this type of work? Because it sounds like you have a real passion for it. It's not just a job, is it?
3: No, I I do. I love it. I I, I raise goats uh, at home, as well as working with with ruminants and horses at work. And uh, it is a real passion. It gets under your skin. It came from my graduate advisor. I I came to agriculture through biology. He he was a dairyman and also a USDA scientist like me. He's the one that inspired me to work for for USDA and really kind of ignited my my passion
2: for agriculture.
1: And the research that is done then in your unit, and throughout ARS, eventually this gets promulgated as advisory information for farmers, right, to improve operations?
3: Yes, absolutely. And it's a two-way street. Uh, our researchers stay very involved with our farmers, with our farmer stakeholders. Um, I, I was in Henry County, Kentucky last night at a field day learning about fencing, which is a little bit outside of our mission area. The farmers will bring the research topics to you, and we very much are a stakeholder-driven agency.
1: Michael flyth is Research Director for the Forage Animal Production Research Unit at the Agricultural Research Service. Thanks so much for joining me.
3: It's a pleasure, Tom. Thank you.
1: We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federaldrive. Forage on the Drive. Fed- Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, two takes on emerging DOD policy, what Congress wants defense to look like in 2024 starting to take shape. But first, why the debt ceiling deal is not quite the defense windfall it seems to be. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Nobody loved the deal Congress worked out to raise the debt ceiling, but it did avoid default and gives a spending blueprint for fiscal 2024. It's not quite the defense bonanza it appears to be, according to my next guest. Elaine McCusker is senior fellow at the Conservative American Enterprise Institute, and she joins me now. Ms. McCusker, good to have you with us.
4: Hey, thanks for inviting me.
1: And we should point out you are also former acting comptroller of the Pentagon, so you know whereof you speak here. But let's begin the review of the defense budget specifics that were in that deal?
4: Yeah, you know, I think there's both good news and bad news for defense in the budget agreement. The caps are too low and the provision on continuing resolutions is even worse. But I'll start with a little bit of good news here. First, the agreement, I think, is good in three key ways. First, it demonstrated that compromise on complicated issues is still possible. We knew back in January when the debt limit was hit that Treasury and Treasury started using their special measures to juggle payments and cash that we would need action on this issue. Yet nothing Thing really happened to do anything about it for months. And I think, you know, we have seen a high and increasing level of acrimony and at times even a lack of professionalism on the part of our leaders. So the fact that the White House and Republican House leadership reached a deal that was then passed and enacted, I think is just good news in and of itself. It saved the country from reputational, economic and national security damage.
1: That reputational thing is kind of important right now because in a lot of domains, we're probably not showing our best side you might say, this decade?
4: No, I think you can say that, you know, this whole situation was somewhat embarrassing and bordering on disgraceful that, you know, we would not be able to have our house in order to this degree. And I think, you know, we were risking a lot of economic and national security damage as we did the run-up to almost defaulting on the debt limit. So reaching a deal in and of itself was a good thing. The deal removed the arbitrary, in my view, damaging and irresponsible link between defense and non-defense spending. This link could resurface and it probably well, But it was important, I think, to acknowledge getting rid of it as a good thing. Defense is the only mandatory and exclusive job of the federal government. So it should not be a priority. It should be the priority. And yet defense is only 12% of budget at federal budget allies. And budgets, they should also be based on requirements. So what is needed to carry out direct admissions of a department or agency and not on some sort of politically driven parity, which is what we've really been seeing since at least the Budget Control Act era. Right. And- so
1: it's 50-50 on the so-called discretionary side, even though it's only 12% of total outlays that the government puts there every year.
4: And that's correct. And even though the Defense Department had needed increases for various really good reasons over the last decade or so, we saw forced increases to domestic spending to keep that parity, even though there weren't valid requirements against that spending. And so I think that was sort of damaging overall. And also the parity issue actually jammed up budget agreements for years as well. So I think the fact that we gave a nod towards not doing the budget that way was a good thing in an of itself as well. And third, I mean, I think the deal, at least initially, seemed like it would provide some much needed budget certainty that leads to better programmatic decision making and cost savings. Now, this could certainly blow up, and it seems it has. But budget agreements, as we mentioned at the beginning, in and of themselves are a good thing. And if you have a top line in which to build your program from the start, you're going to make better decisions and you're going to have sort of more transparency in what you're doing. That budget agreement should have paved the way for some stability. Unfortunately, that hope for momentum towards stability and potentially on-time appropriations is not trending in the right direction, which kind of gets to the bad news. But I'll stop there for a second so we can enjoy the good news.
1: We're speaking with Elaine McCusker. She's senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and former acting comptroller of the Defense Department. You are also saying that on the bad news side then that while certain or to some degree more certain than it was, it's not enough.
4: Yeah, you know, I think what we're seeing now is that in addition to the budget caps being too low for defense, we now also have have allocations provided on the House side to the appropriation subcommittees that are below the agreement caps in some cases. So that happy moment from the budget deal is already pretty much gone. And we're seeing partisan appropriations bills in the House, which, by the way, actually happened when the Democrats were in charge, too. But this means we could see what we've been seeing for more than a decade, which is ping pong between the House and Senate and sort of a stalemate come the fall, which I think increases our chances for a long-term continuing resolution. Congress has only done its job in passing on-time appropriations bills before the end of the fiscal year, three times in the last 47 years. So I think that's you know sort of important note that in one of the reasons I thought this was positive, maybe this would be one of those years. Congress kind of recognized the damage of continuing resolutions by actually putting a provision in the budget deal that imposes a penalty if a continuing resolution goes beyond the end of the calendar year. Unfortunately, that penalty is the equivalent of shooting the hostage. Sure. Not put the penalty on those who need to take action to pass the bills, Congress. It penalizes those who can't do anything about it, the federal departments and actually the taxpayer.
1: Right. And in your experience, when funds do come through late, as they basically always do, even though people pretend that there's a start of a fiscal year and it's all fresh and clean, but the agencies are on that CR, what is the practical effect of that, in your experience, inside the Pentagon and the armed services?
4: Yeah, there's a lot of immediate and long-term effects, and I think it's interesting that we're already hearing co- conversations about government shutdowns. It's mid-June. We don't usually hear about that kind of thing until September. I see the continuing resolutions having five basic impacts on you know, the military and our national security. First, funding is not enough. And I think even if this were a normal year, which it's not going to be, the Department of Defense would lose about $180 million a day starting October 1st under a continuing resolution. Second, funding is not in the right account. And so we're really using last year's prior priorities and strategy and programs. And just extending them into the new year, which means that anything you wanted to do in procurement or DT&E or even MILPERs requirements, MILCON requirements, you're going to be stuck with last year's amounts. The third reason is you can't do new starts or production increases. Typically, there are hundreds of these each year. This year, most notable in the munitions accounts, the administration planned to spend close to six billion dollars more in 24 than in 23 on munitions, and that will all be, you know, sort of a consequence of a CR that we we won't be able to do that. The four- fourth reason is incremental funding contracts. And you're just not getting the best bag for your buck. And you're having uncertainty sort of go throughout the industrial base, the supply chain, and pretty much everyone who kind of lives and works with DOD is going to be impacted by this. And then fifth reason, you lose time in training, production, operations. Time can't be bought back. And as a matter of fact, I think General Brown, who is the nominee to be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said this best recently when he said, all the money in the world cannot buy buy more time. Time is here recoverable. And when you are working to keep pace against well-resourced and focused competitors, time matters.
1: We'll leave it there. And let's hope maybe they'll get their act into gear. Elaine McCusker is senior fellow of the American Enterprise Institute. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview and a link to her analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, what Congress wants for defense to look like in 2024 is starting to take shape. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. House Armed Services Committees at last voted out their bills for 2024 last week. The Senate Armed Services Committee released a statement of intent. For one view of how things are actually shaping up, we turn to the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. I guess you could say it's some progress that the committees, at least on the House side, voted out a bill. But that doesn't really say much about the chances writ large.
5: You're right, Tom. And it's great to have bills reported out of committee on the House side. We actually get to read the bill and it will come to the floor uh, after they return from their Fourth of July recess. So a couple of weeks from now, we'll see that bill on the floor and there'll be quite a few other amendments. The Senate bill is not yet released. And this is not uncommon. What we frequently have seen in recent years is the Senate Armed Services Committee will mark up its bill, they won't release it, so we don't actually know what's in it and it may or may not come to the floor. In fact, the last couple of years what we've seen is the negotiations between the House and Senate have gone directly from a House passed bill and a Senate marked up but not brought to the floor bill, and ultimately we get what looks like a conference report without ever having gone through the actual full conference process. That may be what happens again this year. But let's focus a little bit maybe on what we do know, which is the House bill to begin with.
1: Let's start with the top line, but then that devolves quickly into questions about individual armed services and everything else.
5: Right. And the the top line appears to be the one thing on which there is firm and consistent agreement. The Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023, that was the debt limit deal that the president signed just a month ago, agreed that the defense funding would be at the level the president requested, $886 billion, uh, divided up mostly DOD a little bit to Energy Department and a, little, a few billion to other agencies. Both the House and Senate have stuck to that number. In the house's case they've said no supplementals for ukraine or elsewhere in the senate's case their press release made it clear they do believe additional money is needed so there's agreement on the number but not agreement on what the final number would be the starting point number is there here's the thing though that president's budget request did it address inflation or not you know both committees have said it doesn't cover inflation and yet It assumes 2.4% inflation, but it has a 3.3% increase. So from the numbers point of view, it covers inflation. By the way, the fiscal year starts in barely three months. Do you think we're going to be at 2.4% inflation come October 1st?
1: Well, I guess it depends on what it is you're buying. (laughs) Some things are Uh flat price, but some things they're buying are going up.
5: Some things they're buying are going up. The biggest thing that's going up, though, is embedded in that, and both the House and Senate went along with this, is a pay raise of not 2.4 percent to cover inflation, but 5.2 percent for both military and civilian personnel, and both the House and Senate have approved that. By the way, there's no pay raise in there for contractors, even though obviously they suffer from the same inflation pressures as the government employees
1: do. Right. So the squeeze has to pop out somewhere, and therefore that would be in the procurement accounts.
5: Right, so for DOD to absorb a 5.2% pay raise, and that's you know comes out to 35 to 40% of the entire DOD budget is going to pay in benefits for uh, military and civilian personnel. So if you have if inflation is above that 2.4%, you're adding in that 5.2% pay raise. I'm sorry to muck around with the numbers here, but and it, coupled with that means there's too little money elsewhere. So something has to give. History says, by the way. What will yield here is contracts and the dollars that go to contractors and and, and ultimately what you get to those dollars, both in terms of services and in terms of goods.
1: And there's other inflationary elements outside of the pay raise itself, and that is health care costs continue to rise. And that's a huge bite out of the total defense budget. So, yeah, it all mitigates in favor of contracts being the squeeze. And contracts have costs depending on raw materials and inflationary effects that are still in the economy. And now you're on the well, services it, side, which is not so much commodities and metals and energy, but yet people costs and, and the medical costs and so on that contractors incur.
5: Two elements of that. One, of course, is the boundary between products and services is a lot fuzzier now than it was when you and I got into this business. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of things that both the Defense Department and other agencies in the federal government are buying now as services that they used to buy as products, right? Um, uh, Legacy like IT systems may have at one point, you had to own the server farm yourself but uh, now you know, the data is in the cloud you don't actually own the server or the cloud for that matter all you pay for is access to it similarly with uh, space launch for instance where you know uh, a lot of the satellites going up now are not owned by DoD so uh, that boundary is a lot fuzzier but I think you touched on the workforce issue and this is really where I think the impact and whether you call it from inflation or whether it's just the fact that we still have 11 million vacant jobs and only 6 million people looking for work, costs of workers have gone up over and over again. That's not addressed in either bill. In fact, it might be made a little bit harder in the two bills because of all the focus on the political aspects of diversity and equity and inclusion, which does have workforce impacts.
1: You bet. We're speaking with David Berteau. He's president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And I want to switch gears for a minute here and ask you about a rule from DHS on controlled, unclassified information. This rulemaking goes back quite a while, doesn't it? And now they seem to be reviving it.
5: It does, Tom. The, of course, controlled, unclassified information and maintaining security of that information is probably more important than ever. The situations covered by the rule uh, have increased in importance. The need for protection of such information is more important than when the proposed rule was issued, which is back, it was you know, drafted at the end of the Obama administration. So it's really quite a while back. But also the technology, the awareness, the available processes for uh, both uh, uh, identifying threats and, and mitigating those threats have changed dramatically. And And so we actually at PSC uh, submitted comments on the proposed rule back in 2017. We were a bit surprised to learn earlier this month that, that, that the final rule would be being issued. Um, and in fact, it did come out on the on the 21st of uh, June last week. Our quick read of it reveals an, a number of, of problems. I'll be happy to go into a couple of
1: them. Yeah. What are they?
5: First of all, there's other ongoing work which will impact both the nature of the rule and the world in which it operates. Most importantly, in that in fact you've talked about it on this show, and you've had uh, you've had guests in to explain it, is uh, revision three of NIST Standard 800-171, uh, which is out uh, for comment right now. Will dramatically uh, expand uh, the coverage of 800-171, get it closer in what contractors need to do to what. Federal agencies mm-hmm. need to do on their own systems, which is a different NIST standard. And comments are due on that on July 14th. I was going to say, those so are not, not quite like due long yet. Right. Off. right? No, no, it's, we're, we're right around the corner from that. So, you know, what was the hurry to get this rule after a six and a half year wait uh, to get this rule out when we know the universe in which it operates is about to change? Uh, the second thing is the rule punts a lot of issues to a FAR rule, uh, the timing and content of which are unknown to us uh, at this time. We haven't seen that proposed FAR rule, so it's really hard to tell. So, and then finally, the rule, as we track back against our comments made, again, six years ago, the rule failed to accommodate most of the industry comments, both from PSC PSC and from other trade groups that, uh, that submitted comments along the way there, without a good explanation in many cases as to why uh, that was done. We've reached out to, uh, uh, to DHS and asked for a, a discussion on this. They may well have good reasons for having done what they did when they did it, but I think that, uh, that that dynamic still remains to be played out.
1: Interesting. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on that one. Maybe they will delay it because of the NIST change, because we had an interview from Ron Ross himself on, on the changes to 171. They're not finalized yet, as you point out, because comments aren't even due until – July. And then it takes NIST a while to inculcate the comments. And they do listen to comments into the final version of that revision of 171.
5: They do. And I think, you know, if you go back to your interview with Ron and you heard him talk a lot about the changing nature of the threat and the changing capabilities that the government has to respond to those threats. Um, and that will that will require, I think, a, a dynamic situation to keep on going. Um, but there's one other aspect to it, Tom, that I think is beyond the DHS and even beyond the NIST standard. And that is the... the inadequate recognition by the government of, of controlled, unclassified information in an operational environment, as well as in a protecting tech data for for new systems, et cetera. You know, when you're operating around the world, whether you're the Defense Department or the Agency for International Development or any other federal agency that has operations in other countries, you're operating uh, for your support work uh, on, on the global commercial network. right? Um, and you're you're buying, you know, food, fuel, supplies, telecommunications, uh, access to, to computers, etc., from companies and systems that will never be compliant with U.S. standards because they are in different countries and they have different standards of their own. Some of those guys are not necessarily friendly to us. You know, as soon as you start putting into that commercial system what you're buying, when it's going to be delivered, where it's going to be delivered, to whom it's going to be delivered, what the quantity is, you are starting to run the risk of creating something that looks to me like potentially controlled unclassified information. It will give you operational data uh, that you need to have in order to perhaps do some nefarious things to us. But none of that is taken into account in these systems, and it's one of the problems that um, at PSC. uh, We've had trouble getting the government to recognize that that's a big issue, and it's not one that you can solve by changing U.S. regulation.
1: And switching gears one more time, GSA's OASIS Plus solicitation finally came out. Does this take into account that ruling on task order pricing that came from one of the federal district courts that kind of upended the whole thing, the whole strategy for task order at the time of task order pricing? as opposed to pricing at the time of getting onto the contract.
5: Right. Uh, Oasis Plus uh, did was released last week of the solicitation. I, I want to give kudos to GSA, uh, Tom, because they interacted with industry multiple times over many weeks or even months uh, in order to sort of get draft solicitations get input on those draft solutions, get them, reti- get them refined and, and ultimately issued. So the process by which GSA developed this solicitation is, uh, is an example of the government operating at its best to get what it needs. It has to because we could be buying from this, uh, from this contract for 10 years, which is kind of what GSA estimates. But then it, it got upended a little bit back uh, in, in April when the Court of Federal Claims issued their ruling. It was on a different solicitation. It was on Polaris, a different contract. Um, but it, it upended the basis of, of particularly uh, unpriced uh, uh, bids for task order contracts so that the pricing would come in when the task orders came out rather than at the front end of the contract where it would be at best notional um uh, gsa right. uh, uh did make some changes to accommodate that polaris ruling they think they'll still be able to move forward with that and a particular note and i think this is a real bellwether for uh, for the government uh, a lot of future on ramps you've seen this in a lot of the gwac contracts where uh if you're not on at the beginning you're not on and the only way you can get on is to team with or buy somebody who's on the contract so by keeping it open uh, and having it regularly open for those on-ramps, that could be a real plus going forward. Uh, GSA briefed us on this at last week's uh, PSC Acquisition Conference. Tiffany Hickson, who I think has been a guest on both your show and others, explained this in some detail. And we're really looking forward to uh, seeing what comes out of the solicitation process here.
1: David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much.
5: Thanks, Tom. You're welcome. And we look forward to solving all these problems down the road.
1: You bet. <laughs> we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com/federaldrive hear the federal drive on your schedule subscribe wherever you get your podcasts the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency is out with fresh guidance for how agencies can secure widely used business applications like email office productivity tools. CISA hopes to help agencies develop better visibility into both the cyber threats and the security gaps lurking on those networks. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with CISA's Cyber Shared Services Manager, Chad Poland.
6: Both of these products are part of the, the SCUBA project, which is the Secure Cloud Business Applications Project. SCUBA is a, a service within the CISA Cyber Security Shared Service Office, CSSO, and it's really all about providing guidance, resources, and tools to help federal agencies secure their cloud business applications. And so what do what we mean by cloud business applications, it's SaaS environments, Microsoft 365 applications, Google Workspace, et cetera. You know, as a lot of people know, the FSEP consists of hundreds of agencies, including a number of small and micro agencies, and they really lack the cyber resources of the larger CFO act agencies, Right. So we're trying to provide actionable guidance that helps these organizations secure their environments. And one thing I I really think is really unique and and really awesome about these products is that although they were originally targeted and tailored for the federal environment, they're available for anyone to use. So organizations, state, local, uh, tribal, territory partners, private organizations can leverage these same products to secure their own entities. So within Scuba, we have three main lines of effort. So the first one is the Extensible Visibility Reference Framework. That document and that work stream is all about visibility and telemetry. It's, it's a framework that allows organizations to assess themselves where they're blind and, and where they have visibility gaps, how they can shore up and provide better visibility coverage to make sure that they can track all the different telemetry coming in and out of their, their enterprises, right? And then the, the second work stream is cloud solutions architecture. First document out of there was the technical reference architecture which I look as like the SCUBA foundational document. It really sets the stage for everything else that comes out of SCUBA. It talks about how to secure cloud environments in a very vendor agnostic approach. And it talks about a lot of the themes We talk about visibility and logging, talks about ICAM, uh, talks about the secure configuration baselines, which is a good segue into the third work stream, which is the development of secure configuration baselines. One is for Microsoft 365 that we released for public comment out back in October of last year. Uh, And then the second one is Google Workspace, which we will be releasing later this summer.
7: Got it. That's a great overview. And yeah, I mean, organizations across the world, federal agencies, businesses, all seem to use these same business applications, of course. So, you know, it's probably really important to have a common understanding of what a secure configuration is. I know CISA has been testing out these concepts with agencies as they were finalizing these products. Can you kind of talk about how those tests went, what you learned, how they're going to continue
6: to be used practically going forward? Sure. So, you know, first out the gate for the secure configuration baselines, which A, were number one, developed very heavily by what we learned through the technical reference architecture. We developed a number of internal test environments to test those configurations, do performance testing, do pen testing using our vulnerability management testers. And then we're also looking at developing visibility maps. So with the EVRF being released, we're also releasing our first two workbooks. And one is for Microsoft and one's for for Google workspace. So that's a pretty exciting thing that we're, we're doing. And we're basically giving organizations the ability to now do their mapping internally on those to see where they have visibility gaps. So additionally for the baselines, which has been a multi-month process, is we're, we're actually piloting the Microsoft 365 baselines and the associated assessment tool called ScubaGear with 15 federal agencies. So we have large agencies, we have small agencies, and we're working with them on their implementation of those baselines, their feedback on specific control statements, and their feedback on the tool and, and how it's being used. But also the, the nature of our tool being hosted on GitHub We're getting a lot of industry partners looking at the tool, providing us valuable feedback. To date, I think we've had over 1,700 downloads, which is pretty phenomenal since it's not even a version one yet. Got
7: it. And then since these documents were in draft for the past year, you've also been garnering feedback. Can you talk about what kind of feedback you got and how that played into the final products that are being
6: released this week? We originally released them for public comment in April of 2022. And what we do with whenever we release documents like this is we really want to have a conversation with industry, with our federal agency partners, and get their feedback on uh, implementation, on things we may have missed. And, you know, during those, those comment period, we received close to 500 comments um, on both of the EVRF and the TRA, which is, which is pretty phenomenal, showing the amount of engagement and importance to our partners that wanted to provide a, a better product for us going forward. And then another really interesting thing is the comments they were from private industry, from federal agencies, and also some state and local agencies also provided valuable feedback. so it's a it's a whole breadth of of people who you know participated and commented and provided valuable feedback for these.
7: And so both of these documents are written in plain English. I think a lot of folks could really understand what they are. At the same time, they're you know not short. Sure. What are some of the main highlights or takeaways? The main you know considerations or standards or what have you that you'd want folks to be looking for in both of these documents and how they should be configuring these widely used applications.
6: Hey, thank you on noticing the, the plain language writing of the documents. I, I think, it, you know, we, we go to the great pains to make sure that the guidance and resources um, that we produce can be implementable. And that means that anyone who reads them can understand it and kind of internalize and, and follow the instructions. So I'm glad we hit the mark there. One of the big themes that came out of the, the TRA in, in the comments, and one of the things we really spent a lot of time rewriting is the TRA's alignment with zero trust principles. And also knowing that, you know, the TRA doesn't supersede any existing federal regulation or guidance. It actually aligns very nicely to OMB memo 2209 uh, and also our CISA zero trust maturity model that we just released 2.0. But, you know, like mirroring and making sure that alignment is very clear was very important when we revised the TRA. Uh, so, you know, that one for that. And then for EVRF, there was a lot of comments in, uh, around uh, use cases. You know, how is CISR going to use EVRF? How can organizations integrate this new framework into their own work streams? So we took a lot of effort to really articulate that. And so, A, number one, that organizations know how CIS is going to use it and how it maps to our operational visibility and how it maps to M2131 and how organizations can use it so they can figure out their gaps and visibility. but the cool thing I'll mention for EVRF is that we're also developing a tool that will be available here shortly in the next couple of months that will allow agencies to, in a more automated fashion, develop these visibility heat maps, and so they can quickly and easier, you know, do their assessments and see where their where their gaps are.
7: And then one concrete consideration that I wanted to ask about here is the importance of logs, I think, was really highlighted in the aftermath of the SolarWinds incident from a couple of years ago. And I'm just wondering if both of these documents really emphasize the importance of logging for federal agencies and how they should be doing that within these environments.
6: Yeah, I mean... And you, you hit it right on the head it is, it is logging is an instrumental to knowing, you know, when an adversary is in, in the environment and after they get out, how they got in and where they move around. And you look at all the themes through all of our documents, not just the TRA, which has a, a big chunk on logging, telemetry and visibility. You have EVRF, which is all about giving organizations a tool so they can find out where they're blind. You know, a nice analogy that we use in the EVRF document is kind of that 2D overlay of like, say, a house with a fence. And if you put a camera in one corner, you can see X, Y, Z. And then if you double that that coverage with another camera, you increase your visibility coverage. And so that's a really useful analogy for organizations to understand that different types of sensors placed in different parts of the environment are going to complement you and give you better coverage. And then You know, visibility is is also in telemetry and logging is very part and parcel to the security configuration baselines and making sure that, you know, log types are recorded and eventually, you know, can be stored or or transmitted appropriately.
1: Chad Poland, Cyber Shared Services Manager at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with FederalNewsNetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.